Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi, everyone. My name's Dev Raga, and welcome to My Melody Money Medical. And this is the second episode where we're going to talk about money wins. I've got a special guest, Maz from Canberra. Welcome. Thanks, Dev. Happy to be here. So in this episode, me and Maz have been sort of chatting a little bit pre-episode about some of the things that she does when it comes to money wins. So we'll talk about it as a topic. We'll talk about what Maz does for a living, um, her investing style and what her philosophy is. And the whole point of this Money Win series is to empower and educate people that are like me and like Maz, who may learn from each other. That's the whole point of this. Maz, are you ready to get started? Keen, let's go. Let's get started. Now, if you're new to the podcast, the three main aims of this are to educate, empower and entertain. And if you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to contact me directly on Twitter or on Facebook. And like always, if you can leave a five-star review, that's even better. Now, Maz, just perhaps just start off by telling us what you do for a living. I understand you're a healthcare worker based in the eastern side of uh, Australia. Perhaps just tell us a little bit about how you go about your money issues, basic stuff like budgeting, etc. Yeah, thanks, Deb. Yeah, as you said, my name is Maz. I'm a physio and um, I'm also a budget nerd from probably 20 years. So this is the right place for me and I'm happy to be um, to be chatting with you, Deb. And really, um, when we were chatting before um, the podcast, one of my main sort of themes I wanted to get across is that different things will suit you at different points in time. And you've just got to do what suits you at your point in journey and where you're up to with your finances. Um, You can't do everything at once. And if you try, you'll just um, do your head in. So um, I think just choosing where you're up to for your journey and what things uh, work for you at the time. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I always say there's no one way of doing things. There's always various ways of doing things. And if I reflect on my own sort of last 12, 13 years, things have changed as my life stages have changed. I mean, obviously being able to save a huge amount of money when I was single um, and then saving a decent amount of money when I got married and then when then kids come and you have other priorities, so then the savings rate goes down. So I think you're quite spot on. So do you mainly work in the public system or do you work in both or also just a private? So I've actually recently changed jobs. So I've spent most of my physio career in the public system um, and I've recently changed positions to a private practice. Um, So it's quite different, lots to learn, lots to enjoy, but still something that aligns with, with the area that I like to work in and my values. Um, so it's been a been a good change. Can I ask what was your motivation to change from public to private? Because I have some physio friends who've done the opposite. They've started in the private and they've found it really stressful and they've gone to the public for a, basically a salary-based uh, approach. What was your motivation to swap over from public to private? Um, that's a big question um, and lots of things came into it. But I did spend a long time finding somewhere that I thought 
was a good fit for me personality-wise, um, my skills, the culture, and that I was a good fit for them as well. So it was quite a long decision and a long process to come to that. Some of it was just being um, in the same position for a while and wanting a change of scenery and wanting some new challenges. Uh, that was certainly part of it. Um, I guess I'm still, it's still a fairly early move. So I guess I'm still to see how some of the um, other things play out in terms of um, finances and things. Um, certainly, I think, I mean, I am conscious that things like, you know, the extra salary sacrifice and some of the extra super um, you don't usually get in private. And I did take that into consideration in my decision. Yeah, I think it was finding what fitted me and, again, what fitted my phase of life. Okay. Yeah. So essentially, have you then gone from a very stable income, which is what the public system is, to a fee-for-service private physio? Because um, like in, in, in medicine and and obviously for, for listeners that don't know, I am a doctor. I'm actually in the public system, but I used to be in the private system where everything was fee-for-service. So essentially, if you didn't work, then you don't get paid. Um you, you charge each patient um, uh, a private fee. So is that how you've modelled yourself in terms of the private physio system? Do you bill each patient and do you get paid per patient or how does that work? Yeah, great question. So I'm actually employed as an employee, not as a subcontractor. Mm. Um, so where I'm working, um, you get a base salary and then there's um, some profit sharing um, as well. So um, I guess there's an element of the stable salary um, that you'd be used to in, well, I guess one of the advantages people see in a public system. So there's a stable salary, um, but also um, some commission-based incentives as well. Um, so a bit of mix of both. Okay, cool. So essentially, like in your case, the way that I understand it is you get a base wage and then if you make a profit, then you are one of the partners of the practice or you're an associate of the practice? Um, so no, I'm not a partner. It's part of, I guess, their employee agreement. Okay. So, yeah, the business is giving you a percentage of, um, I guess, the earnings above what's included in your base salary. Sure. Because when you said profit sharing, like in, in medical practices, that oh, only, works for, only works for partners. Um, so, essentially, you get paid a base wage and if your billings are above the base wage, then you get a percentage of that above rate essentially. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so probably more correctly, it's a commission rather than a profit sharing model. Right. And do you find that moving on, and, and I promise we will get to the money side of things, but I'm just curious because not many doctors, and to be honest, healthcare workers in general, apart from physios, actually understand how a physio practice works. Um, so I'm just curious, do you then only work Monday to Friday or do you now have to work weekends? And how does that compare to your life in the public system? Yeah, um, great question. Look, it does depend on the individual practice and the individual business. Where I am, we're actually not open on weekends at all. So, and to be honest, that's one of the things that was attractive about this position. Mm. So, even though I don't have the same opportunities for overtime, um, I'm also not assumed that I'm going to work weekends and public holidays um, as you're expected to in the public system, um, mm. which again was a, really a phase of life decision. Um, in terms of just, you know, being almost 15 years into my career, looking for some a change of pace and some different opportunities, which I'm, you know, looking forward to, to digging into a bit more over the next year, couple of years. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm roughly, 
you're probably a little bit senior to me in terms of the number of experience, but I've certainly taken that approach that I don't do any on calls anymore. I don't do, um, I mainly work during the day. I do some weekend work based on, you know, operational requirements. So um, certainly taking the back step, uh, which is interesting, similar sort of stage of life, I, I suspect to yourself. Now to the money things. So how do you then budget from going from a steady income to a potentially, well, I suppose you have a base salary, but what do you do then if you make more than your base? Like what's your philosophy on that? Um, Good question. I'm still working through that. Um, As I said, it's only a relatively new position. The other thing that's different is that I get paid monthly um, instead Mm -hmm. of fortnightly. So straight away, I had to allow for that sort of month, need to be that month ahead Mm. um, from the the first pay. Long time ago, I was in a different job where I got paid monthly, but it was a very long time ago. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's one thing that I remember you do need to always be that month ahead. Cash flow is an issue, isn't it? Because if you're on a monthly wage, mm. then cash flow becomes an issue. So in the public sector, you're spot on. Almost everyone gets paid fortnightly. So cash flow is not really much of a problem. Uh, and in fact, in my case, I'm across multiple networks and it just so happens that I get paid weekly depending on which network's paying me. So I always have money money coming into the bank account. So, But to be honest, for the average person that's a non-healthcare worker outside of healthcare, the average person gets paid monthly anyway. That's the norm. Uh, most companies pay monthly. So um, it, it's because I've got family members in non-healthcare industries and they get paid monthly. So I always wondered about the cash flow situation. Um, you know, if all your bills pile on on the same day, then you really have to be careful about budgeting. And I guess going back a step to, I guess, some of the ways that I think about managing my money and have done for a long while is there's two main buckets in my head that, um, or that when I first started setting up a budget, that my money goes into. So there's the things that I think about as your day-to-day expenses. So, you know, groceries, petrol, coffees, takeaways, that sort of thing. And then the little bucket of all the big or little bucket of money that's put aside for those bigger bills. So those irregular bills. So whether that's, um, you know, car maintenance, utilities, um, and, you know, car rego, those sort of things that come around less frequently, but tend to be bigger bills. So thinking about getting a month ahead, I'm thinking, well, have what? How much is a month's worth of day-to-day expenses, and what's the, you know, rough monthly amount that I put aside for the bigger bills? Yeah, so so interesting because recently I, I I just received a few bills. Uh, you know, council rates is one of those things. Um, you've got to pay your council rates, you know, every quarter or every year. You've got to pay land tax for some of the investment properties that I have. So does that mean that? you would anticipate a bill like that coming your way, but you've already factored that in right from the get-go. So if the bill is $1,000 every quarter, then you take you know a set amount every month and put it aside for that anticipated bill. Is that how you would budget? Essentially, yes. Yep. Oh, that's, that's interesting. So, and, and I guess then what happens, I mean, I suppose if there's an unexpected bill, do you have some sort of a buffer because you'd have to have a buffer and that thinking about that month ahead to make sure that you cover for the unexpected, like, you know, winter heater bills, for example. I mean, uh, where you are, can I mention where you are? Yeah, that's fine. So um, you're in Canberra, which my understanding in winter, it gets bloody cold. Yep. Um, So 
uh, utilities are a big factor, I would have thought, in Canberra. Is it is it mainly, um, just sidetracking here, the, the heating yeah. in Canberra, is it mainly gas heating or is it electric heating or what's the, what's the standard? Yeah, so I guess traditionally there has been a lot of gas, a lot of ducted gas. Um, yeah. Now, obviously, as that's becoming more expensive um, and people are, you know, some of the systems that got put in when Canberra was getting, you know, suburbia was expanding, um, having their use-by date, people are moving to electric heat pumps, um, solar panels, that sort of thing um, to bring the costs down. Right, right. Now, the second thing you wrote to me about in your money wins is know how to read your pay slip. Isn't that the truth? Um, Interestingly, my pay at one of the larger hospitals in Melbourne is currently under audit upon my request. And uh, look, I mean, like most healthcare workers, and I'm sure you probably were the same initially, I actually didn't pay much attention to the pay slips. And I'm across multiple health networks. And What's so frustrating is my payslip at One Health Service is structured a certain way, the way that it looks and the way they report things. And my pay at another health network in the same state is completely different the way it's structured. And it's really confusing about the way the way they do it. It's almost as if they do it on purpose. So in Canberra, when you're in public health, um, is it all under ACT Health and therefore your pay just comes from ACT Health or is it basically hospital-based where the pay slips can be quite different? Um, yeah, so you're essentially all under ACT Health. Um, there are a couple of different hospitals in the ACT, but I guess because of the geographical size of it, they're essentially all, you know, all under the banner of ACT Health. And as, as far as I understand, it's all getting paid from the same centralised um, right, centralised right. Um, payroll that services the ACT government. So what was your um, strategy? Or I guess if you're, I mean, we have several hundred physios listening in um, and thousands and thousands of healthcare workers. What would be your tip in terms of helping them read their payslip? Did you have a system in place or how would you approach it? Um, look, it's definitely not easy. It definitely can be difficult. Um, and certainly some payslips are not easy to read. There's a lot of, um, you know, abbreviations and acronyms that are used. I think it, like anything, it's practice. I think if you're familiar with what you're, if you're, you know, lucky enough to be in a, whatever position you are where you've got a base salary, um, I think to start with, if you see what that is for a few fortnights, so you know, okay, this is roughly, you know, the regular amount that I get, then you're in a position to see when it's varying. I think, you know, most, let's assume that most mis- payslip mistakes are honest mistakes, you know, they're still mistakes and you've got a vested interest in making sure that, you know, you're getting paid correctly, especially, you know, I know some people are doing, you know, some pulling some long hours and doing a lot of overtime. If you're not paid correctly, then essentially you've done some of that work for free. Yeah. yeah so to me, absolutely. you know, you're the one that's got the vested interest in making sure it's right, whether that's you know, I know these days not everyone necessarily gets a printed roster, but I know some um, people still do, that if that's varied, that you, you know, chuck a note in your phone. I used to just tap my hours as I finished a shift, I, that it was an overtime shift. I just, on that date, just tap my hours that I worked into my phone so that when I got paid, I could go back and see if those hours equated to what was on my pay slip. Because the other thing is, you know, there's often a lag of a couple of fortnights between when you do the shift and when you actually get paid for it. So it's hard to just remember off the top of your head what dates you worked, how many hours you worked, 
And if it's a couple of fortnights down the track, you might even forget that there's a shift that you haven't been paid for. Um, so if you've got some sort of record keeping system, then you can just go back and double check quickly. I agree. It's 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 all the systems, isn't it? Actually, this actually happened to me recently where Melbourne Cup Day in Victoria is a public holiday and I worked across a couple of organisations that particular day because, you know, I don't particularly celebrate Melbourne Cup Day. So I'm like, well, if it's a public holiday, I'll work. And what's interesting is uh, this week is actually the pay week for the last fortnight in in Victoria for one of my health networks. And I actually forgot that it was a public holiday. And, and you're right, you, you tend to forget so easily. Like initially I thought, oh, like I definitely I remember that. It's only like 10 days ago or whatever, or two weeks ago. But it's amazing how quickly you forget your roster. So I actually forgot about it. And then I had to chase it up and sort of said, well, actually, um, I work Melbourne Cup Day. It is a public holiday. I had to contact pay office. So so do you, I mean, I, I'm pretty sort of relaxed about it, although now I'm getting a little bit more militant about it. I just email payroll. What's your experience been in the ACT Healthcare Network about dealing with payroll in general? So there's certainly, we used to actually do physical hard copy timesheets for our overtime and our extra shifts um, and then in the last 12 months or so we've gone to an online system mm. which I actually find it easier because you can go in yourself and actually um, look at what's been inputted and I actually find there's um, less mistakes and less delays that way because it's skipping a step. So you or your boss put in the overtime and approve it and it goes straight into the payroll system rather than a physical timesheet that's got to go through another couple of sets of hands before it actually gets imported, input. Right. So I actually found that that's a little bit easier to track. So so you could log in before your boss sends off your pay or approves or whatever. You can actually log in and see whether your shifts have been placed correctly. Yep. Right. Yep. So interestingly, thousands of doctors have listened to that right now and said, wow, because we don't have access to that at all. So what's interesting is for uh, is is that normal in physio pretty much everywhere? Like like you you have complete access to your roster and what's being sent to payroll. Uh, it's a bit hard for me to say because I've only I only worked in um, public health before I recently changed jobs, so yeah. I've only got experience of you know, a number of systems. Certainly, I know the nursing staff were on that system because they were already on it. Um, before Allied Health went on to it. I'm not sure about the medical team. I, right. I mean, I would assume it's the similar, um, particularly given that the payroll, you know, it's all in the one system. Um, right. So I would assume that it's similar, but I couldn't say 100%. So if you're an ACT doctor listening to this and that doesn't happen to you, I'd be very curious to hear from that doctor or any doctors because certainly in Victoria, um, certainly the nurses, I think, have access to that sort of stuff. I'm not sure about physio and pharmacy, but certainly wherever I've worked, I've never heard of doctors actually having access to the exact timesheet online. It kind of automatically gets done. And, mm. of course, sometimes it gets done correctly and sometimes it gets done incorrectly and therein lies the problem. So maybe the system should be that healthcare workers should all have access uh, prior to payday. What are their shifts to make sure it's all accurate. Like I, I've been um, in the roster, I only find out uh, there's been mistakes until payday because like you, I sort of keep, 
I keep track of, you know, roughly what the pay should be. And if it's anything less than that, I go, well, hang on, it should have been this. And that's sort of a trigger. Then I'll wait for the pay slip and analyze it and go, actually, there's hours and hours missing, um, which is not really a good system, is it? I mean, sounds like your system is a lot more robust in terms of preventing errors from happening. So I assume as that if you log in and there's errors happening, you would then alert your boss who they would correct it on the spot before it even gets to pay. Yep. So you had a base timesheet that then before sort of the close of the fortnight, you would check it and you would agree or disagree with what was on there. And then also one of those senior staff would check it as well. Right. Okay. So does that mean that the number of times that you have pay errors then surely would be quite minimal? Because like in Victoria, there's pay errors almost every second pay cycle. So does that reflect, I mean, you would only have that system in place if it actually helps you reduce the errors and therefore get you the money that you truly deserve. In your experience as a physio in ACT Health, did that happen? Did it actually reduce the number of errors? Yep. In my experience, yes. Right. Yes. Okay. And obviously I couldn't, you know, speak for staff who were having lots of roster changes in a fortnight. Um, But certainly because we were on, you know, getting a fortnightly pay and then overtime on top of that. Um, Mm. It'd probably be a bit harder again if you had lots of shift penalties to try and track. Um, I can imagine that's pretty difficult, you know, but again, but you're the one that's in the best position to pick those up. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Look, pay pay is such a big topic and and nothing irks me more than healthcare workers getting screwed over their pay, which um, happens more often than not. Now, the other thing that you mentioned is um, obviously public health and salary packaging, which you know, every state territory has. Now, something unique in Victoria, uh, and it may not be unique to ACT. So for example, I'm across four different health networks in Victoria, and we don't have a centralized health system. So in other words, it's not called Vic Health. Although I think moving forward, what is happening is a lot of the smaller networks are amalgamating with the larger networks. So you'll have Eastern District and Western District, etc. So the advantage of such disorganisation in Victorian health system, I get to salary package four times because I'm across four networks. So in Canberra, if you're working, I think there's Calvary, which I think is a public hospital. Yep. And then there's another one, which is Canberra Public Hospital, let's say. If I worked across both of those sites, does that mean that I can salary package twice? Not to my understanding. Mm, That's what I thought. My understanding is that the public part of Calvary Hospital come is still under the auspices of ACT Health. So my understanding would be not, but again, I couldn't 100% say that for sure. Um, I'm actually surprised you can do that. I feel like the ATO <laughs> would have found that loophole and snapped it shut. So so it's it's to be honest, it's not a loophole. It's, it's a legit thing because each network in Victoria, so you have Alfred Health, you have Royal Melbourne Health, you've got Western Health, you've got Eastern Health, you've got Monash Health, and then you've got all these rural networks like, you know, Wimmera Base Health and Bass Coast Health, all that sort of stuff. So each of those health networks act independently. So each of them have a CEO, each of them have a director of medical services Mm. and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And if you just work across them, uh, you get to salary package in that health network in addition to all the other health networks. Now, I guess what, what the strategy in Victoria is, and I guess if you're a Victorian healthcare worker, listen up. When I was a doctor as an intern, we had to do rural rotations, we had to do 
you know, Melbourne rotations, whatever. So each time you get seconded to another place, you get to salary package again. So during my junior years, uh, one of the money hack that I always teach junior doctors is that if you're getting seconded and you don't mind getting seconded, then do so because it's essentially less tax. And a lot of doctors in Victoria would work at a health service to reach their salary packaging cap, which is around $11,000, and then just not pick up any more shifts as a casual until the next salary packaging year and just rinse and recycle. So they're always kind of getting tax-free income. Um, so I assume in ACT Health, is it still the same? Is it 11500 that you get to salary package? Yeah, I think the gross up amount is about 17000 Yep, same. Yep. So, yeah, I think it's 300 or 320 a fortnight that you see come out of your pay. Yeah, and, and I think in New South Wales, they have the same system as ACT. You can only package once because it's under the auspices of New South Wales Health. Same with Queensland. I think South Australia is also the same. I'm not sure about Tasmania and I suspect WA is the same. So Victoria is one of those, you know, unique situations where you are really incentivized to work across multiple networks, which I completely exploit as much as I can. But yeah, if you're not salary packaging, um, then that's basically free money that you're giving away, essentially. I've got a controversial one. And after this, we might take a little bit of a break. And that is you've got to live in a share house till you're 30. Um, <laughs> now, gasps aside, so is that what you did or like what, what's the motivation behind that? Because that's pretty hardcore and I could never live in a share house. I've never have. So I'd freak out, but I'm just curious. Look, that was a little bit tongue in cheek, but it, it is something I did do. And again, it's something that with a little bit of hindsight, you know, contributed to me being able to, you know, live well within my means for quite a while. Certainly the last couple of share group houses I was in, there was only two of us. So it was only me and one other friend. We were still splitting costs. Um, but certainly earlier on, you know, when I when first left home and was studying, you know, my first, you know, jobs that are on, you know, we're earning a lower wage, I was in um, group houses often of three people. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. Look, I think it's a great way to pull your costs. So, you know, if you're living in a rented accommodation, it makes complete sense to share that rented accommodation across three or four people and minimise your costs. If income is a little bit tight and, and, and you want to save a lot of money, and I think that's completely fine. What did you think about your, I mean, you must be a relatively flexible person in order to accommodate other people into your house. How did you go about that? Any sort of tips to our listeners? Because I'm very inflexible. Um, so to give an example of how inflexible I am, and this is going to sound really crazy, I have my own ensuite in my own house just for me because I just cannot share a bathroom or anything like that with anyone else, even my own family. And they think that's a bit weird, but I think that's actually quite normal. So I, I'd really struggle. Did you, so did you have any such problems or how did you go about it? Um, look, I, mean, I guess when I first, you know, moved out of home and, and was working, I didn't, re you know, I couldn't really afford not to. Um, so it was certainly initially born out of necessity. A lot of it comes down to the dynamics of the people that you're living with. And some of that's a bit of trial and error. You certainly do have to, you know, you have to be a bit flexible and other people have to be a bit, a bit flexible with you. Um, and you can't expect that everyone does things the same as you do. Um, certainly, you know, when it does work, it's when people have realistic expectations and similar expectations in terms of, you know, how people clean up the kitchen after themselves. 
Mm. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that, and I guess depending on who you're sharing, because I have shared with people, I have friends with, um, but I've also shared with people that I didn't know um, before um, okay. we shared together. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes the dynamics just um, don't quite fit. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know There's I have any um, any magic. <laughs> yeah, it, it works well for some people and it doesn't work well for others. Uh, my, my next question, which, which you have answered, is did you share always with people that you knew or did you share with people that you didn't know and never met before? So, um, and you did answer that question. It was a mix of both. So that's interesting. We'll just take a quick break. And when we come back, I've got a couple more things to talk about. And also perhaps, Maz, if you can give us a bit of an insight into the way that you invest and any sort of tips that you would have in terms of investment, tell us about your investing journey. So we'll be right back after this break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, welcome back. We're with Maz, who's a physio in Canberra, who's been telling us a little bit about some of the things in terms of money tips that she's come to do over the last sort of, you know, 10 to 14 years as a physio. I just want to talk a couple more um, things that you do in your own life in terms of money. Another sort of slightly interesting one that you sent me, and that is adding your deductions into the ATO app as you go. Um, And that way, at the end of the year, it's sort of just automatically calibrated. So, that gives me a little bit of anxiety because I don't use the ATO app. I'm like, well, you know, do, do I really want to send all my information to the ATO? But really, they kind of know everything about me anyway. So is that something that you normally do like pretty routinely? Is that something that you use? And do you just use it on your phone or? Yeah, so I only started doing that last financial year. But now um, I've started to make it a bit more of a habit. So the ATO have got an app, which once you set it up, it's linked with your mic of 
and I guess the the ATO part of MyGov as well. Um, but there's an option there that you can input deductions straight away. And it's just the same sort of things that you would put in at the end of financial year anyway. So, you know, it's November, professional registrations due this month for physios. Um, so when I paid my rego, I just straight away put a deduction in the app. And then at the end of the financial year, it'll download um, when I do the my tax, it'll download straight into my tax because it's already linked to the ATO. Do you do your own taxes then? Yep. Yeah. Okay, right, sure. And does that mean when you upload it, do you have to upload the receipt of your APRA fees or does that come after? No, so you can um, attach screenshots and things. It's not, um, I right. guess, a compulsory part of the app that you upload a screenshot or anything. Um, and the same when you do do the, the MyTax these days. Um, you put in the deductions, um, but you don't have to verify it at the time that you, you put it in your tax. Obviously, you have to be prepared to verify it if the ATO ever um, audited you or asked you for evidence. Um, but when you're putting the actual deduction in, you don't have to provide evidence at that time. Have you always done your own taxes? Yeah, I have. Yep. yep. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd be interested to find out how many listeners actually do their own taxes. I've actually never done my own taxes, even when I was a um, single income earner and sort of a junior doctor and stuff like that. Because um, I, I actually found it quite daunting to do and I wouldn't even know where to start. So it's interesting how, so you just do it through MyGov? Yep. And, cool. you know, the majority of mine is just straight, you know, wage and salary and then some um, professional deductions. Um, so there's no investment properties or anything like that, you know, work from yep. home business um, costs or anything like that, that we're trying to, sure. that I have to work out or calculate. Okay. Now, that sort of is a good segue about your investing style. So have you always been frugal ever since you've graduated in physiotherapy and when did you get interested in money and what is your investment style that you use? Um, so, again, definitely born out of necessity in the first instance. Um, so, when I was first out of uni and started working, so I actually um, did some other work before physio, but out of my undergrad and started working, I, one of my first jobs was in retail, so I wasn't earning a whole lot. And, it, again, I really started budgeting because it was out of necessity and again, one of the things that I as I talked earlier about having kind of two main buckets that I think about my money going into, um, and that was a way of thinking that I started or got onto pretty early. Whereas when you're on a lower income, if you don't put some money aside for those bigger bills, you just you just won't have it when they come due. Mm. Um, so it's something I started doing relatively early, and it was a way that you know again when you're starting often starting out on a relatively low income. I knew that there'd be a little bit of money available when them, some of those bigger bills came due or you needed new tyres or, or, you know, whatever that unexpected expense is. Right. And in your, your sort of um, like do you maximise your super or w- what sort of investing style do you do? Uh, do you automate it or do you buy individual shares, active, passive, all that sort of stuff? Yeah. So for a long time, it would have only been super and some extra super contributions mm-hmm. was pretty much the sum of my investing. Um, and for a long time, that's pretty much all I knew even existed. Um, so it's only been in the last couple of years that I've started investing outside of super. As I've become a little bit more aware of what the options are, um, there's a lot more choices for investing um, in terms of how easy it is to to invest. And again, I think also some of that is is phase of life. You know, you've got to have a little bit of money spare and know that you can put it into investing and leave it before. I guess that's something that you can do consistently. Mm, exactly. Yeah. So you know. It's interesting because when I first started investing, 
and I've been with Vanguard for a while and, and th- there wasn't much option out there for investors. And we're talking 12, 13 years ago when I first started, there wasn't much out there. There was no spaceship, there's no raised, there's no micro investing apps, there's no, you know, huge amounts Podcast. of ETFs. Yeah, well, podcasts out there. there. There was no huge amounts of ETFs out there. So I've sort of stuck uh, with Vanguard f- for a while. And really in the last, oh, I reckon in the last five years, it's it's really exploded in terms of the amount of information and options that are out there for people. And I sort of started podcasting in 2018 and that's when it was sort of really coming out of the woodworks in terms of the amount of options. So yeah, I'm not surprised in the last sort of two or three years, you've, you've probably looked into investing a lot more because pretty much everywhere you go, like social media is full of it. So where do you get your information from? Um, I know that you listen to my episodes um, and thank you very much for listening. And I, and I think you listen quite regularly is my understanding. Where else do you get information about finances apart from my podcast, for example, or what sources do you use? Yeah, certainly lots of podcasts, some Australian ones and some US-based ones as well, even though it doesn't always apply. A lot of um, hearing information in different ways, Um, a bit of reading as well. And again, there's lots and lots of choices um, for how you get information. Mm. Um, So choosing the right level for where your understanding is up to. Um, is important as well because otherwise it's just too overwhelming. Yeah, look, it's it's interesting, right? I mean, I think I've done over like two hundred odd episodes in my in my channel, but to be honest, people don't need to listen to a lot of it. Like a lot of it is like you know, I mean, do you really need to know what a PE ratio is, or do you really need to know what your marginal propensity to save is, and those are the concepts or the um, uh, Phillips curve? You don't really need to know that. I think the ultra geeks out there love it. But really, when it comes to investing, the philosophy is quite simple. You've got to spend less than you earn and you've got to put some money into investment that you feel comfortable with and then just rinse and repeat and do it forever. I always say to people, don't bother about all the minutiae that I talk about because a lot of that I don't pay attention to myself. I, I, I do love learning about it. I think it's useful to know what that is so that when someone's talking to you about it, you kind of understand what's going on, particularly if you're going to an accountant or a financial advisor. So you feel a little bit educated about it. But you're right. You don't need to know a lot of this complexities. And you yeah, you have to understand enough to be to be comfortable with the decisions that you're making and where you're putting your money. Do you actively invest? Do you you know choose stocks or anything or do you just basically go the ETF portfolio pathway? No, just the the broad based index. Yep. Yep. I'm just not interested in the minutiae. Um, and it and I don't think it adds any you know for me and what I'm trying to do it doesn't it adds complexity without adding return really I mean and I mean that literally and metaphorically you know I'm not looking to out, outpace the market I don't need you know I don't really need to and it just makes it more complicated trying to chase those sort of returns yeah look um have you ever been to the United States have you ever visited there mm, long time ago yep so one of the first things when I visited there and I went sh- into a shopping center is the amount of choice they have in food, for example. Like if you want to select a cereal, they'll have like a million different types of cereals. Now, I think the philosophy there is, and and, and I've got a lot of American relatives who, who live in America, they always say, we love choice. We want a million different cereals because I want to know what's out there. Whereas I kind of feel 
that's a bad thing sometimes, having too much choice and having too much information because, you know, they say knowledge is power, but I think in investing, it can work against you. If you have too much knowledge, if you're just consuming so much information on TV and on social media, you could potentially end up doing a stupid thing with your investment. And I've spoken to a number of people in 2020, especially one, one particular doctor who moved all of their money from super into cash. And it was an ultimate disaster because it was just constantly reading the news about how COVID's going to end, end the world. It was a bad thing, don't get me wrong, but I, I, I always just tell my American sort of relatives, say, hey, actually having so much choice of information and choice of cereals is probably not a good thing because you get analysis of paralysis and you end up making the wrong choice um, ultimately. I think there's a really good TED talk about it, which I might link in the um, show notes if anyone's interested. And they talk about this phenomenon of having too many different types of investments, which is what I like about ETFs and index funds. It's relatively simple. I don't have to worry about any of it. How do you split your investing between outside of super and inside of super now that you are investing outside of super? What's your philosophy on that? Well, you're going to take me down the rabbit hole a little bit if you want, Dev. (laughs) So um, up to relatively recently, I um, was doing a lot of salary sacrifice into super, Mm -hmm. um, but I've actually recently stopped that because I want to put some of that money outside of super. So with, you know, a lot of time and a couple of good years in the market and some extra money going into super, I've got a reasonably healthy super balance mm-hmm. um, and want to start to put a little bit of money outside super um, to give me a bit more flexibility. So using it as a bridge to retirement or uh, I suppose using it as a bridge for financial independence? Um, look, that's that's what I'm hoping for. Um, I don't know if we'll get there. Um, whether um, the other thing it gives us options to do is to, you know, put a bit extra on the mortgage if we want to. Um, and you could argue the semantics about the mass for that. But yeah, having some of that money, you know, we're lucky enough to be in a position to have a little bit of money um, extra. Um, so having a bit more choice about where that goes and to potentially, potentially provide some flexibility before 60. Yep. So are you, are you really into FIRE or or? Um, financial independence. I, I recently did an interview with Aussie Firebark, who's who's really, I suppose, an Australian pioneer in terms of fire. Is that something that you're aspiring to do? Are you aspiring to reach financial independence and maybe work part time? Or um, I don't know that I would say that strictly speaking. Certainly, I guess when I first came across, this is, I guess, some of the things about having information that suits you at the right time. Um, when I first came across fire and some of the concepts, it was a bit out there. And also some of the, you know, when you look at some of the maths involved, the lump sum that you would need to be financially independent, it's a lot of money. And that just seemed insurmountable. You know, it just seemed so far away, but Mm -hmm. certainly I found some of the concepts useful for having some different perspective about, um, how you approach your money. As I said you know, things like having some money outside of super to potentially provide a little bit more flexibility. Um, some of those things I've found useful to apply to my situation, even if um, I'm not, strictly speaking, going to fire or aiming for that, you know, 25 times um, your annual, annual income that's often used as a kind of guideline for what you what you need to be financially independent. It can be quite off-putting, Um when you sort of say to someone, oh, you know, you really need 25 times your annual expenses to reach fire, that, that can be quite, that's that's a big sum 
for a lot of people and that can be quite off-putting, you know, you're quite right. And so going back to the whole money wins thing, I'm, I'm just reading reading the list here. I think this is slightly controversial, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Change comprehensive car insurance to third party only, but there's a caveat to that. And you did mention once your car value drops. So I assume what you mean is if you've got a very cheaper car, then just get third party rather than get the whole comprehensive. Is that is that what you mean or? Yep. So my current car is 11 years old, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's probably only worth five or $6,000. So if I wrote that off, you know, it's a little bit of money, but it's not twenty, thirty thousand $30,000. But when you're paying, you know, eight, nine, close to $1,000 a year in comprehensive insurance, mm. um, you know, that's a big percentage of what the car's actual value is. So I do have third party and property. Mm-hmm. Um, so that still covers someone else, covers me if I damage someone else's car. So the insurance will help pay or will pay for their car to get fixed, just not for my car. But that's dropped my insurance down to, I don't know, two or $300 a year instead of eight or nine. Yeah. So I, I recently did a car insurance episode. And I sort of calculated, you're right. I, I sort of calculated if you're spending more than 5% of your car value or your purchase price of a car on insurance, um, you know, a sort of if you buy a you know fifty thousand dollar car, ten percent would be five thousand. If you're spending more than two grand on insurance on that car, it's a bit of a problem. So you know that's just sunk cost and massive opportunity costs. So um, if you have a five thousand dollar car and you're spending a thousand dollars on it, I mean that's that's a huge amount uh, of the percentage of value car that you'd be spending on insurance. So uh, I agree and and excess. Um, we, we had another um, guest recently, Harry, who's an accountant. Harry, if you're listening, he has maximal ex- excess on things like insurance and sometimes um, private insurance or car insurance. Is that something that you do as well with some of your insurances? Yeah, bump the excess up a bit to reduce the insurance rate. Um, and I guess too, again, that's on the background knowledge that I can pay. I've got that bit of money put away in my buffer fund and my bills fund so that if I did need to pay that excess, I've got that money to hand as well. Mm. So that buffer fund, is that like, do you just put it in an offset or is it sort uh, of yeah. Yeah. offsetting against your, your mortgage? Because one of the things you did write about is having an emergency fund. I suspect your emergency fund is offsetting your mortgage. So it's kind of- Yeah, we've return. got a mortgage. So yep. 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 So those sort of funds just sit in the offset. Yeah. You, you, you sort of mentioned about when your dog was quite sick, you were able to pay you know, the expenses- um, out of pocket. We we actually bought a dog at the start of this year. After about five years, my kids were harassing me for a dog. And I said, you know what? We'll get you a dog. Um, it's bloody expensive. Did, you know, I chickened out. And I, I, I did get um, pet insurance and, and the food and, and, and the vet care. I'm like, man, this, I mean, I did budget for it, but, um, you know, it's on track, but it, it's not cheap, eh? I mean, it, he got kennel yep. cough and I was just like, what? <laughs> Like yep. you have to go to the vet for that. No, um, no Medicare for the fur fur ninjas. No, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, did you, if if I may ask you, with your dog, I mean, did you have to spend a huge amount of money? Um, yes, in terms of the it was vet a lot pets? of money. Right. And did you have insurance or? No, we don't have pet insurance. Um, right. He's yep. too. He's probably too old and has does have a chronic condition, so he wouldn't probably qualify. Right. Um, but again, that's 
you know, unexpected vet bills come under the um, kind of buffer emergency fund category. Mm. And, and yeah, and it, it was a lot of money. Um, and, you know, we were lucky enough to be in a position where we could make decisions, medical decisions for the dog. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, we, knowing that we could we could pay for them and not, um, you know, and, and the vets are great. Um, and I know they do, you know, talk to the talk to you about how much things are going to be and get approval for that before they do any procedures or tests or anything. But yeah, adds up very, very quickly. I, I have to say the, so we've had to take our dog, Teddy, um, his name's Teddy. Um, and we've had to take him to the vet a, a couple of times. And yeah, the, the financial consent process from the vet was actually quite informative. Actually, I, I'd probably argue it was probably better than a financial consent process from a doctor that we've had, to be honest. We go mm-hmm. to see the doctor and pay the bills, and I think the vet was actually more comprehensive, which is interesting. But we ended up getting pet insurance because I'm just, you know, I, I just get insurance for pretty much everything. And the claiming process has been pretty reasonably easy. It, uh, I would argue that it's as easy as claiming my private insurance. Um, it's it's almost as if they do the easy caps and all that sort of stuff. It's it's very similar. So we, we, we got it through RSPCA. So, you know, pretty quickly they assess the claim and pretty quickly they're reimbursed. So I've actually, you know, had to claim a few times already. So I actually, actually found that process quite transparent, quite easy to do, which was quite surprising to me. Um, I thought it would be a lot more complicated. But, um, of course, there's always an out-of-pocket expense with uh, vet bills anyway, and it, obviously they're not cheap. And interesting, uh, I do have some vets listening, so hello if you are. It actually takes a number of years to become a vet, which I actually didn't know. It's very comparable to uh, other healthcare professions like physio and, and medicine. Um, I think it might be four or five years, if I'm not mistaken, to become a vet. So it is a full-on full-on degree, which is interesting. Yep. No, shout out to the vets. They were, um, they looked after the dog and looked after us, some anxious um, dog parents. Absolutely. And and look, to be honest, Maz, I mean, uh, a couple of times, like when, when Teddy was, you know, got a little bit sick and, you know, it was basic stuff like viruses or whatever it is that he got. Um, I think once we had to get antibiotics into him, uh, which was interesting. Um, yeah. Like the kids were in a panic, um, you know, we're like, you know, we need to bloody find a vet. We're, we're very lucky to live not that far away from a 24-hour vet hospital. Like the emotions sort of, it's it's almost more emotional taking your dog to the vet than it is taking your child to the doctor. <laughs> sort of. We actually had COVID when our dog got sick, so we couldn't right. take him. Oh, gosh. Um, it was a saga. Um, yeah, but we had to get a, a friend to come and pick, him, pick the dog up and take him to the vet <laughs> because wow. we were quarantining. So, yes, that was a... Quite that was a drama. Absolutely, yeah. We've discussed a lot, so thank you so much for your time. I always say to people when I do these interviews, it always starts off with maybe two or three questions and then the, basically the conversation follows and we talk about life and money and investing and bills and budgeting. We've covered all of those topics today. So I do have lots of physios listening in and I think physiotherapy as a profession, you guys kind of fly under the radar a little bit. You're sort of in like in the hospital setting, you're sort of there and you, you sort of do your work in the background. Don't make a fuss. Don't make much of a story. Uh, in private practice, uh, you guys out there do a lot of that sort of stuff. I think like, I mean, I work mainly in emergency and a lot of emergency departments now have physios in the ED who see patients directly. These patients don't need to see a nurse or a doctor because let's face it, like if there's knee pain or back pain, I mean, a physiotherapist 
is probably going to know a lot more about that than than me because you know I can prescribe stuff but I don't know much about the um yeah a physio side of things so what what's been the challenge for you as a physio in terms of finances and if there's a physiotherapy student listening in what would you like to say to them that they should perhaps do that perhaps you didn't do uh, as a junior physiotherapist back in the day? Ooh, good question. Uh, I think certainly get your routines and systems in place because um, that just really sets you up for success for whatever you do and puts you in a position where you can make decisions confidently or financial decisions confidently. The other thing I would say generally is that you know, physio's got lots of different sub-disciplines and lots of different areas that you can move into. So don't um, pigeonhole yourself too quickly. You know, some of the things I thought I would be doing as a physio at uni aren't necessarily the things that I ended up doing or have done in my career thus far. You know, and I, and I think there's, you know, like a lot of healthcare, there's skills that make you a good professional, you know, are you communication skills um, and your ability to understand where where your patient or your client's coming from um, as much as anything, you know, and those skills will serve you wherever you go. Fantastic. Yeah, shout out to all the physios and shout out to my physio that listens to this channel. So thank you very much for what you do. I do see a physio relatively, well, you know, a few times a year for my back and uh, aches and pains here and there. And I sort of, you know, book in ahead of time. They're actually quite hard to get into. And also my GP so hard to get into, like three to six week wait. So I actually book all my appointments in kind of at the start of the year just to make sure they've got it all down packed because I strongly believe in preventative health, et cetera. And I see my physio for my back uh, quite quite uh, regularly because I think, you know, standing all the time and seeing patients and bending over and treating wounds, it's it's not very back friendly, unfortunately, working in the hospital setting. So thank you so much, Maz, for joining us. And it's nice to have a healthcare worker that's, you know, that's not a doctor and not a nurse and sort of allied health is, is a huge part of the healthcare sector. Thanks for letting us understand how it all works in the public and private system and really appreciate your time. Thanks, Dev. Pleasure. So that's it for today. If you like what you've listened to, please share. It's free. We put a lot of thought and effort into these channels and podcast episodes. Uh, please give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or Android or you know whatever platform that you may use or all of the platforms. It's even better. And please make sure you give us a five-star rating and five-star review as well. My name's Dev Raga. This is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.